today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, a draft Brexit deal is finally in play after an awfully long time. Is is it sa- clear sailing from here on in? What happens now? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My uh, my pleasure, Scott. Before we get into this, I want to ask you your opinion on referendums or plebiscites. Uh, you know, we just had a situation in Calgary where uh, open plebiscite vote for people whether they want to continue with their their bid for the Calgary uh, 2026 Olympics. Uh, that obviously went to the no side. This whole Brexit scenario started with a public vote. Your thoughts on all of this process? Is this democracy or chaos? It's probably both, um, and I really mean that. I think on issues of this magnitude, um, these are really big issues. These are not whether you're going to, I don't know, build another building down the end of the street. I mean, Brexit is as big as you can get. It's about the constitutional furniture. You know, it's uh, similar to uh, what we did with the patriation of the Constitution and the entrenchment of the Bill of Rights, the uh, Charter of Rights, uh, 30-odd years ago under Pierre Trudeau. Um, And so I think there are times when one should, in a democracy, one should go uh, and seek the... um, the views of the people, recognizing that it's not, at least in a parliamentary system, it's not legally binding. Um, and nonetheless, it, it has heavy uh, weight uh, for, uh, for journalists and for members of parliament and cabinet ministers. So I, I thought that um, it, that was, uh, even though I didn't agree with Brexit at the outcome, that doesn't mean just because I disagreed, therefore they shouldn't have had it. And turning to the Calgary, which is much more recent, I was hoping that they were um, going to have that um, plebiscite. Um, I was very uh, critical of Calgary uh, going for the, uh, not just Calgary, uh, I'm very critical of the IOC because I just, I won't get onto into the weeds on this because that's not what we're going to be talking about, but Generally, the model is, is badly flawed. The IOC basically gets most of the revenues on every Olympics, and then they outsource all of the expenses, or almost all the expenses, to the local municipality, and they get stuck with the bills. And, and they're least able to afford it. And, and before people, cities agree to do Olympics in future, they should be demanding a rewrite of the, the business model, the business plan that supports the Olympics. And here they were about to, Calgary's in bad shape, because of a brutal recession, and the IOC was going to inevitably, uh, in having uh, selecting them, uh, have them uh, absorb uh, very large uh, deficits that they cannot afford. And for those who said the Olympic cannot have a deficit, all we have to do is go back to Jean Drapeau, 1968, the mayor of Montreal, 50 mm-hmm. years ago, who famously said that uh, uh, the Olympics would no more have a deficit than a man can have a baby. Mm-hmm. Well, the Montreal ran up a an enormous deficit, over a billion dollars, which back in 1968 was real money. It took Montreal 50 years to pay it off, and it forced them to postpone many important things they wanted to do in the city of Montreal because they couldn't afford it. So this is where a plebiscite can be useful to give courage to those people who are on that side of the issue, or on either side of the issue. It'll give them moral support when they have a plebiscite, to when people say, well, why did you do that? Why did you support it? Why did you oppose it? Hey, 
the people are on my side. Here's the vote. Here's the outcome of the poll. All right. One last question on this whole IOC thing. Um, is this less about Calgary and more about the IOC and yes. the fact that Calgary is now out? And I remember in 88, I was there. This was a huge coup, a huge jewel. Yep. Now it certainly isn't what it, it, it was. So what does this rejection by Cal, uh, Calgary, what does that mean to the IOC? I, I think it's a, um, uh, a very, uh, and I've studied this because I wrote a couple of op-eds because of a project where I became the local leader against uh, the redevelopment of Lansdowne Park in Ottawa, where the Red Blacks play. By the way, I was on the losing side of that proposition, so I didn't wasn't able to convince my fellow citizens to shoot down the deal to uh, pay for, use public funds to build the stadium. Um, but be that as it may. Do you still stand by that now that it's complete? Yeah, yes, I do, and I'm not opposed to football. I'm a football nut. I'm a football junkie. So this isn't I'm against football. I'm some elitist against football. It's the only sport I follow, actually. I'm a terrible Canadian. I don't follow hockey. I'm a football guy. But I am also equally opposed to the idea of these giveaways to these billionaires and multimillionaires, whether in Canada or the States, to build stadia that cost you on the states they're running a billion to two billion and the ordinary people are bailing out billionaires which is just just madness likewise the ioc it's the business model in that instance they have the cash flow because of the way i won't get into the but they they structure it so they get most of the revenues from all of the sponsorships and the advertising and it's in the billions of dollars billions of dollars that flow into the ioc which is a non-profit agency fair enough but then the municipality, whether it's Oslo, whether it's Japan, whether it's Calgary, whether it's Montreal, they inevitably get stuck with the bills because the venue, the, the Olympics is held somewhere in a venue called a city. And there's all kinds of uh, cost overruns inevitably on these mega projects. And there's all kinds of demands made, security and so forth. And the city of uh, half a million, a million, two million, five million people get stuck with sometimes multiple billions of dollars of deficits and costs that fall on their shoulders. And the Olympics are beginning uh, becoming ever more expensive. Yes, Sochi was an exception, uh, the extreme exception on the other end. They spent over $50 billion. Okay, it was Putin and his crazy ego and so forth. But the Olympics, every Olympics has been more expensive than the preceding Olympics. Yeah. And so the time has come, and I hope that the message is heard by the IOC, that they've got to redo the business model of financing uh, future Olympics. And one is to have revenue sharing, or maybe even the IOC picks up most of the costs. All right, let's uh, bring this back to Brexit uh, yes. and talking about uh, the vote there. And, and it seemed that the next day people were as surprised uh, with the with the uh, result as they were with the actual vote. Is right. this an issue that is too complex? Does the average person have the capacity to make these decisions? I believe so. And now let me immediately qualify that. Do I believe that the average citizen is going to read through 600 pages or an 800-page treaty, whether we call it NAFTA or we call it the TPP, or we call it CETA, or we call it Brexit. No. Do I believe they ought to? No, I don't. Do I believe that they need to read it clause by clause, semicolon by semicolon? No, I don't. They need to know the broad strokes, the broad direction, the, let's call it the philosophical assumptions. And, and, and I mean, that's true of any you know, Scott, that's true if you think about it. That's true of any bill before Parliament or Congress 
or the local legislative assembly. I mean, look at the current budget implementation bill. I just testified on it last for Thursday before the House of Commons Finance Committee. That bill is over 800 pages. That's just one bill. One bill. <laughs> and there's lots of bills that go through the House of Commons. That's why we have representative democracy. We elect people to represent us and go read those bills on our behalf. We deputize them. We need to know the broad outline, the broad uh, parameters, the broad assumptions uh, that guide the bill. Are you know on the on the Elections Act? Are we liberalizing the act? Are we making it more restrictive? Uh, on on Brexit, is it going to restrict trade or enhance trade? Those are the kinds of big picture things that we need to know and able to grant or withhold our approval or our uh, assent. And and so I know the Brexit has been very messy and there's been all kinds of people getting really upset about this. But, you know, even though I was on the other side, and by the way, <laughs> I'm as Canadian as can be, as you know, but I have a British passport. <laughs> because my late father was born and raised in England, and under Amer British law, uh, I am entitled and I obtained a British passport that gives me the full right to vote. I was on the losing side of Brexit, but that doesn't mean that because I was on the losing side and others were, that it was a bad thing to do. Just, just uh, very quickly, I want to get this across, Scott, because I think there's a lot of people, there's still a lot of stuff that's being said about Brexit uh, that, uh, that is wrong. Uh, I mean, people in England and the UK did not vote against uh, uh, the EU because they hate free trade. England, people forget because they don't know their history, the original free trading nation in the world in the last 500 years was England. And, and the, the famous Royal Navy uh, that went around the world uh, seeking trade opportunities and being protected, I mean, the, the Merchant Navy being protected by the Royal Navy. They rebelled against Europe because, in my view, and the view of many, many others in Europe, Brussels, which is, call it the political capital of the European Union, right. has overreached. Instead of just having a good old-fashioned trade agreement, which is a good thing, at least I believe that, they've decided, no, 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 we've not only got to, we're going to have a trade agreement, but we're going to regulate every aspect of your life, including telling you what color margarine must be, because we in Brussels have a superior understanding of these deeply complex issues. And they were rebelling not against free trade. They were rebelling against the overbearing nature of the Brussels uh, bureaucracy uh, uh, that was uh, implemented so many rules and regulations. In fact, in other words, they're far more centralized now than Canada. Canada's very decentralized between Ottawa and the provinces. They're becoming more and more centralized. Yeah. And, and that is what they're rebelling against. They're not rebelling against trade or they're not becoming racist. Does, Brussels, does Brussels understand that? Do they no, get I don't. That? I I read voraciously stuff about the European Union every day, and I mean every day. I'm reading the German, uh, the major German papers in translation. I'm reading the British papers, and I I and I've talked to people from from Brussels, and I do not believe that they understand that. They they sort of demonize the other side. Say it's a bunch of populists, Donald Trump types. Hmm. I mean, I go to t Poland every year. I teach in Poland, and there is a real backlash uh, against the EU. They're not against the 
the trade aspects. They're against the the overbearing or the the federal government. Let's call it the federal government, even though they don't call it right, that. Yeah. Brussels is the federal government, and Brussels is telling the provinces, except that they're countries, what to do on just about everything. And this is causing enormous resentment and blowback. And I think that ties into a lot of the problems facing Europe today, not just on Brexit, but in Italy and the election of that government, the Polish government, the Hungarian government, uh, that they're not allowing enough decentralization, which you need in a very diverse uh, region, hmm. which Canada is. That's why we have de- uh, federalism. And, and what they need is something similar to Canadian federalism or American federalism, and they don't have it. So where is this deal now? Why now? Right. Uh, will this ever get approved? I'm uh, skeptical because I know I just, I've read the barriers. And first off, there's deep divisions in uh, Prime Minister May's cabinet. She's got to get the cabinet to support her. Then it's going to go to the Parliament, and everything I've read, and I'm only basing this on, and I've read the Telegraph, and I've read the Guardian, and I've read the BBC, I've read, you know, any, you know, what I would call reliable, you know, reasonably reliable, uh, credible sources, and everything is saying that there is not a majority in the UK Parliament to support this particular treaty that has been negotiated as a draft. So I'm not sure it's going to get through the British Parliament, that's if it gets past the cabinet. And that's not even debate. I mean, already her arch nemesis, Boris uh, Johnson, has come out against it. Right. And, the, and the cabinet may come out against it. Even if they support it, I think the parliament is going to shoot it down. And by the way, we haven't talked about the other 27 countries in the European Union mm. that also have to say yay or nay. And we saw what happened with CETA, which was a relatively minor trade agreement for them compared to Brexit. And look at all the difficulties we had with the Belgians and the Flemish and and so forth. And so I, I think that this might, if not dead on arrival, it's it's going to be a, a fish out of water flopping around in the sun for a long time. So wh- how do you improve on that? Will this ever get through? Considering there is all of this difference of opinion, what makes anyone yeah. think they can get beyond the EU? Beyond that, what they had. Scott, you've asked the excellent question, and I think this is uh, time and, and democracy, and I'm speaking very sort of macro, I realize. But democracy seems to, democracies seem to come up um, in times of crisis like this, and not just military crisis or war crisis, but a crisis like this, they seem to, a leader seems to emerge. Think of Lincoln and the, you know, the, the, the Civil War in the United States and, uh, mm. and Roosevelt in the Depression. And, 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 and a leader may emerge in England, and maybe, who knows, maybe it'll be Boris, um, who will capture the, the mood of the time and uh, Churchill in the, in the late 30s, just before the war, at the beginning of the war. And, and come forward with a plan that will generate assent. Right now, there's no one leader who is commanding the what commanding meaning uh, uh, attracting the support of a clear majority of uh, the British peoples. I think that's very fair. I mean, the Corbyn, the leader of the Labour, has one very clear set of views, and Boris has another set of views, and and Prime Minister May has a third set of views. There's no consensus, but that's just, to me really means that a leader has not yet emerged who has captured the zeitgeist in the UK, who will, because I don't believe it'll go on forever like that. So they will, somebody, it will, if it is defeated, that's going to cause some renegotiation because the European Union can't get it through. They will, they, mm. they will see the reality. 
and say, well, gee whiz, okay, that's what we wanted, but it isn't going to happen. So now they'll have to go back and do some slicing and dicing and some horse trading and some wiggling and uh, to see if they can get it through. And who knows? This is a very, Scott, the other important thing here, this is not static. I mean, the Brexit agreement they may have negotiated is static temporarily. It's six or 800 pages in writing on paper. But, I mean, the whole situation, what's going on in Europe? I mean, Macron's numbers are mm-hmm. record lows. Uh, you know, Poland is pushing back very hard against the centralizing that I talked about in Brussels. So is Hungary. Uh, the Germans uh, are. Uh, she had to. She had Merkel had to step down because she's lost the support of the German people uh, because of uh, people pushing back against her views on 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 um, uh, massive numbers of immigrants coming into Germany. So there's an awful lot of flux. In Europe, in Germany, in France, in Italy, in the UK, and that's making a much more fluid situation as they are trying to negotiate this deal. Well, they've negotiated it, but if it is shot down, it, it, you know the, the the whole situation in Europe is is moving very quickly. So it's really that I think the next 24 months are going to be crucial because the biggest question of all, the biggest issue of all for me outside of Brexit is. Who is going to emerge in Germany to lead Germany? Because the leader of Germany is de facto the leader of Europe. So will it be somebody who does the opposite and preaches unity and the way it used to be? Or will it be someone who's populist and preaches divisiveness? Um I still think there's a majority, uh, majority there support for the EU, the the idea of a European Union. Can we go I, backwards I, in that respect? Can but, we turn this around? There, there, you just hit the nail on the head. I, I, I don't think it's sort of populist versus sort of status quo. There, I think a leader is going to emerge who's going to say, you know what? This, the EU is a great idea, but maybe we've pushed it a bit too hard. Maybe it's time to walk it back a little bit and allow more diversity and flexibility. So keep the, the EU, level. keep the EU, but make it different, make it, it new, make it revamp, more like, it, I modernize. Hate I sound ethnocentric, but it make it a little bit more like Canada. Hmm. In other words, where the decentralized states have more autonomy vis-a-vis the center, just like the provinces in Canada have a lot of autonomy vis-a-vis the national government. Wouldn't that be odd if that's the way it works out? Instead of coming up with a Brexit deal, they rework the EU. How bizarre would that be? That would be very ironic, but it would be very just, I mean, in, in, in fitting, appropriate, yeah. when I say just, because there are other voices in Germany calling for this, in Italy calling for this, in Poland calling for this, where they're saying that the current way it's structured, the way the EU is structured, is not working and it needs reform. So maybe Brexit will become the trigger. We'll look back in two years mm. and say Brexit was the trigger that caused some uh, tinkering and, and reform of the European Union. Good point. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.